Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Will. I'm the business editor at The New Statesman. And today I'm speaking to the economist and writer Duncan Weldon. Duncan has written the cover feature for this week's New Statesman on the inflation wars, the inflation and cost of living crisis in the UK, and the fact that neither of the Conservative leadership candidates, Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, seems to fully appreciate the scale of the economic crisis into which Britain is headed. Duncan, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Let's start by talking about where this inflation is coming from. You describe it in the piece as a negative terms of trade shock, um, which is a term used by economists. Would you mind putting that into layman's terms for us? Yeah. So to translate that out of economies, as it were, what has happened really in the last year is Britain is undergoing this negative terms of trade shock. The easiest way to understand that is the price is as the price of goods we buy internationally, things like energy, things like food has arisen, and it's risen a lot more than the kind of goods that we sell overseas. So the stuff we buy overseas has gone up in price very sharply, much of that as a result of the war in Ukraine. The price of stuff we're selling overseas hasn't risen as much. So overall, the country is effectively poorer than we hoped it would be. And we're seeing that in the form of really sharply rising prices in Britain. And a lot of comparisons have been made to the 1970s. At first, officials at the Bank of England were saying, don't worry, this is nothing like the 1970s. And then a lot of politicians have started comparing it increasingly to to that period, especially as inflation reaches into double digits. Do you think that's a good comparison to make? Well, I think on the level that comparison is usually made, it's not especially helpful. But the economy of the 2020s is very different structurally to the economy of the 1970s. So the structure of the jobs market, the labour market, has really changed almost beyond recognition. You know, we had Thatcherism in the 80s and the early 90s. Trade unions are much less powerful than they used to be. Back in the 1970s, around 50% of British workers were in a trade union. Today, it's more like one in eight in the private sector. The jobs market is more small L liberal, more flexible. It's easier to hire, it's easier to fire. Workers don't have the same kind of bargaining power. So we're not seeing now 
the kind of wage price spiral we saw in the 1970s, where prices went up, workers demanded higher pay to compensate them. That put up the cost base to firms, and they had to put up prices again. We're not seeing that. And the economy is much more internationalized. Globalization has happened. We import a lot more, we export more. Supply chains are less nationally focused. So it's a very different economy. But the sense in which the 1970s analogy is helpful, it's not in terms of those dynamics of what's driving price rises, but the really striking thing about Britain in the 1970s is it's an economy which was hit by multiple shocks simultaneously, which made it really hard for policymakers to react. And I think in that sense, we're seeing something similar now with the aftermath of the pandemic, a war in Europe, public sector under pressure, all of these big backlogs, all of these different crises are happening at the same time and pushing policy in different ways, making it hard to know how policymakers should react. I guess one way in which the current economic climate is also similar in, in, to the 1970s is in terms of the number of strikes that are taking place. Um, as you said, organised labour is much less powerful now, but um, there are still strikes taking place. And the response of some politicians has been to argue that to give pay rises to these workers would be inflationary because their pay would be higher, they would spend more, and that would drive up demand and the price of goods. Do you think that's a reasonable explanation or a, a politically expedient? I think the industrial sort of activism we're seeing this summer you know, is on a different order of magnitude to the 1970s. I think it's important to say that we've got the rail workers out, we've got criminal barristers going out. Looks like we'll see some strikes in the public sector going ahead, but it's still on a different scale to what we saw in the 70s. And, you know, the reason for these strikes is completely and utterly understandable that inflation is running at about 10%, wage growth's running at an average of closer to 5%, so people are worse off. And this isn't like a bolt from the blue. This comes on the back of sort of 10, 15 years of really soggy real pay growth. So it's not like people have had a good 10 years before this happened. This is like the latest fall in real wages we've seen in just over a decade. Now, the politicians responding, it does sometimes feel like some members of the Conservative Party want to refight those battles of the 1980s. Britain's trade union law has already undergone a very strict tightening in the 80s and the 1990s. It's hard to see what more real restrictions could be placed on trade unions. And some of the things they've come out with are essentially nonsensical. There's been talk of allowing agency workers in to replace striking workers. Now, it's interesting that the recruitment agencies were generally against that proposal. They put them in a difficult position. They didn't think it was workable. And, you know, if you're looking at something like rail signal workers being out on strike, it's not like there are hundreds of rail signal workers who can be brought in as agency workers in these really critical signals. Politicians obviously are trying to play politics with this. This is what politicians do. I think the reasons why these strikes are happening are completely understandable. Is it also accurate to say that this period of inflation is taking place in a much less economically equal society than the inflation of the 1970s took place? And my colleagues, Alona Ferber, wrote a great piece about why inflation is higher for women. And there have been various reports that inflation is already a lot higher for people on lower incomes. Is that also a key difference and something that should shape the policy response? 
Yeah, I think there's two things going on there. So firstly, some of those structural changes in our economy since the 1970s. One big change since the 1970s is that Britain is a much more unequal country than it was in the mid-1970s. You've already got a higher level of inequality before this price shock comes along. And the nature of this price shock we're experiencing now, the really big drivers of it are energy prices and food prices, really the essentials of life. And the less money you earn, the greater proportion of your income you spend on those essentials, food, fuel. So when we're seeing food and fuel prices driving inflation, what we're effectively saying is the rate of inflation is higher the poorer you are. So yes, you see a very, you know, everyone is being hurt by this inflation. It's going really quite high at the income distribution, but the pain is hardest in the bottom half of that distribution. Are we already in a recession? It's hard to say, but it's looking increasingly. So if we're not in one now, we'll almost certainly be in one by next quarter. And what's more worrying, the height of the peak that inflation reaches or the duration for which inflation stays high? See, I think both are I think both are worrying. I think there's a third worry on top of that, I'm afraid. So the first worry is the height of the peak. So the Bank of England is now expecting more than 13%. There are lots of investment banks saying 15, 16%. There's one investment bank, Citigroup, saying 18.6, which I think is too high. But we are going to see a much higher peak than Britain has experienced since the 1970s. But that's an alarm. But the really the second worrying thing is when I look at the most recent Bank of England forecasts, it's not just that the peak it's got, is going up, it's that this inflation is really expected to be with us for mo- this very high inflation is expected to be with us for most of 2023. And when politicians talk about how do we get through this winter, well, yet the winter is going to be very difficult, but it's not like this problem goes away in the spring. That's going to be a continuing hit to people's incomes. But then finally, even once the peak is over, even once there's a long period of high inflation is over and inflation heads back down towards something more comfortable. It looks like we're going to have high levels of some prices for quite a long time. So think about energy. If the price cap goes up to £3,500 and then stays at £3,500 for a typical energy bill for the next two or three years, by next year, because the price of energy, the amount you're paying isn't going up, the inflationary effect goes away. But even if energy price inflation goes to zero, if you're still spending three and a half thousand pounds on energy, you're not going to feel much better off. And that sort of levels effect, as well as the rate of change, is something that we're not seeing much political engagement with. Yeah. And indeed, there have been some forecasts from um, energy analysts that have suggested that energy prices could stay high and volatile into the 2030s. But as you say, there are key differences with the 1970s. Um, but I, I think it's probably reasonable to say that one politically expedient similarity is that the is the policy response in your piece suggests that Liz Truss's proposal for Prime Minister is to offer a reheated Thatcherism, to deregulate in various areas, to to cut taxes and to pursue the kinds of responses that Margaret Thatcher pursued in order to get Britain out of the, the slump of the 1970s. Are those measures Thatcher took actually available to Liz Truss, though? And, and do you think they would work? If you look at Britain today, if you compare it to other advanced economies, in the OECD, sort of the club of rich advanced economies, they publish statistics on measures of labour market regulation, le- levels of product market regulation. Britain tends to come 
very low on all of those different measures. We are already a very small and liberal, very deregulated economy compared to our peers. And it's really hard to see where there is space for further deregulation outside of planning, which is a thing that I don't think Liz Truss will be politically brave enough to touch. You know, the thing about Margaret Thatcher is, and Thatcherism, it's already happened in Britain. And it's very hard to see how you do it for a second time. I think when you look at the tax cuts, we can argue the merits of cutting corporation tax or cutting national insurance tax, but there is very little doubt that none of the tax cuts that Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak have spoken about will seriously address this squeeze in living standards, which is going to be the biggest problem facing the economy for the next six to 18 months, because it hits household incomes, they cut back on their discretionary spending, that hits firms who are already being hit by energy prices. None of these sort of tax cuts really go towards addressing that. I think what I found really disappointing, but perhaps not surprising about this uh, conservative leadership race is there's been almost a complete failure to engage with the nature of the crisis we're facing now. The fact it's this terms of trade shock, the fact that lots of it relates to the aftermath of the pandemic and the war in Europe, which is hitting the country. And on a 24-month plus view, we can talk about investing in renewable energy, investing in nuclear, all of that. But for the next two years or so, there is very little politicians can do to mean that the country as a whole isn't going to feel a big hit. And the real debate should be about how we go about allocating that pain between different households, different firms, the government's balance sheet, all of that, rather than how we make the pain go away. But instead, we get this sort of sunny, can-do attitude. I'm going to unleash growth. I'm going to cut your taxes. You know, it'll be a difficult winter and then things will be on the up. That's not the outlook we're facing. And it would be helpful to have some honesty about that pain and about how we're going to allocate that pain rather than how we're going to pretend it's not there. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical technical and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. 
Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When Liz Truss talks about these tax cuts, reversing the rise in national insurance and corporation tax, um, getting rid of green levies, she says that they can be paid for by, uh, through through headroom, uh, which is a, a pot of money that's become available. Do you mind explaining what she means by that and where that money comes from? And is it real? Yeah, so at the last budget that we had in March this year, and the last set of forecasts from the Office of Budget Responsibility. The Office of Budget Responsibility said, by the end of this Parliament, relative to the government's own fiscal rules for how they want to see debt falling, how they want to get the government's deficit back to certain targets, relative to those targets, there was about £30 billion uh, available of sort of wiggle room. That's the sort of spare capacity, the headroom, whatever you want to call it, £30 billion now. The Office of Budget Responsibility were clear that even back in March, that money might or might not be there. The fact that you build that in because you're forecasting the future and it's necessarily uncertain. Now, even at the time those forecasts were unveiled in March, early March this year, the Office of Budget Responsibility said they were out of date because two weeks before them, Russia had invaded Ukraine, energy prices had started to spike, the outlook had turned down. We're now, what? six months on from that budget. And those forecasts are just completely out of date. They're out of date. They massively understate how much inflation Britain is going to experience. They massively overstate how much economic growth we expect there to be. And they don't account for the 30-odd billion pounds of additional support that Rishi Sunak put in place as Chancellor in his May cost of living package. So we don't know how much headroom there is there may not be any. We're not going to get new Office of Budget Responsibility forecasts until realistically late autumn, early winter this year. But it is very politically convenient for Liz Truss to be able to say, look, I'm going to, yes, I'm going to cut taxes by £30 billion, but I've got the space to do that. But she doesn't want the homework marked yet by the Office of Budget Responsibility. When we get what will no doubt be called an emergency budget in September, it will almost certainly not come with new official forecasts. It will be based on forecasts from six or seven months ago. And sometimes politicians have to respond quickly to an emergency. Certainly not giving the government the advice, wait 10 weeks while the OBR does new numbers. But I think it's not a bar to taking action now, but the action that's needed now is short-term measures to address really high energy prices for households and firms. It's not permanent tax cuts. And I think, you know, the case, you know, permanent tax cuts really should be accompanied by new long-term forecasts. And there's no need to make these permanent tax cuts now in September. If she still wants to make them, we can make them later. Put in place emergency support now, come back to the longer-term stuff when we get an actual proper budget later in the year. Even if we assume that this headroom does exist, however much it might be, what happens to it when, as it will almost certainly have to do. The, the 
Bank of England then raises interest rates. Yeah, this is the real complicating factor in the outlook at the moment. This is what makes this a harder problem in some ways than the recession that hit in 2020 when we got the um, COVID pandemic or the, even the 2008-2009 financial crisis. In both of those previous sort of big recessions that Britain's had in the last 15 years, you had fiscal policy, that's taxing and spending, going into easing mode. So taxes being cut, spending increased. And at the same time, you had the Bank of England cutting interest rates. This crisis is different because the Bank of England is hiking interest rates. It's hiking them at the fastest pace it's done it since the early 1990s. You know, it unveiled its forecasts earlier this month saying they expect the British economy to go into recession, to stay into recession for all of 2023. And at the same time, increased interest rates by half a percentage point, the biggest single rise since the mid-90s. The bank thinks Britain's inflation problem is to do with more than just energy and food prices and accepts that it's mostly sort of an imported energy price story, but it's worried that service prices are rising too fast, that the labour market is too tight and wage growth is too fast. And the Bank of England is, when they hike interest rates while predicting a recession, the only way to read that is that the Bank of England have decided a recession is necessary to slow the economy to bring inflation down in the medium term. And this is going to be a real problem for Liz Trust because what the Bank of England is signaling is, as she adds more support to the economy, either through tax cuts or more support with energy prices, they will faster to increase interest rates faster as a result. If we look at what financial markets are expecting, they now think interest rates, they're assuming Liz Trust is going to win. They're assuming that the tax cuts are going to happen, some sort of energy policy support. They're now predicting interest rates to hit 4% by May next year. And it's going to be a deep irony, I think, that Liz Truss has spent much of this summer sort of berating the Bank of England for not acting to bring inflation down. And now, when she becomes prime minister and they act to bring inflation down by pushing interest rates up to the kind of levels we've not seen in 15 years, I don't think she's going to be particularly happy with that either. But that, I guess, will add to her argument for some structural change uh, at the bank or a revision of its mandate and also the changes that she's interested in making to the Prudential Regulation Authority, the Financial Conduct Authority, various financial regulations that we've kept from the EU. These are all Thatcherish measures, aren't they? They're all deregulating the city, introducing more risk in the hope of economic growth. But as you say, Liz Truss is facing a situation where all the levers that Thatcher pulled are still pulled. All the levers that were pulled in 2008 and 2009 were, are still pulled because interest rates are still historically low. So in terms of the long-term responses to these questions, what is it possible to do? So I think in the... There's a few things. I think in the very short term, Liz Truss will have to very quickly accept that both households and firms are going to need an awful lot of support over the next six to 12 months. And when you see those sort of projections that the energy price cap could go to, depending on who you prefer, four and a half thousand pounds or even five thousand pounds or more, you just have to step back and say, realistically, British house, most British households are not going to be able to afford that. The government is going to have to either cap bills or give them money to pay their energy bills. The same 
with firms. Much of the debate is obviously focused on households, that's important, but firms don't even have an energy price cap. And as they're on fixed term deals end, you're seeing business after business say they're being offered deals which are four times or even five times as much as they were currently paying. They're going to need support or we're going to have a lot of otherwise viable businesses failing in the next five or six months, particularly as consumers have less to spend and are spending less on discretionary purchases. So the first thing Liz Trust is going to have to do is help firms and businesses pay for their energy over the next few months. In the medium term, perhaps the one upside of this whole crisis is lots of the kind of things we knew we had to do to get to net zero. And we were thinking about, you know, that's all got to be done by 2050. The case for doing them much more urgently is at least stronger now. Reducing our dependence on imported energy by investing heavily in nuclear in renewables, in insulating homes, retrofitting buildings. The case for all of that is now much stronger than it was. But most of this stuff, it's not the kind of things quick results from. There are a few small, easy things you can do now, but most of it's going to be at least two, three, four years before we start to see the benefits. But the case for spending on that now is incredibly strong. And we've seen responses from Labour and the Liberal Democrats that look a bit more in line with the policy responses in other countries to put a price cap on, as in to freeze the price cap where it is now and to absorb the cost of that. Is How much would that cost? And, and do you think that's realistic now and, and in the long term? Yes, I think how much would it cost? The honest answer is we don't know. It depends on where, depends on where energy, international wholesale energy prices go. Labour and the Lib Dem plans both think it would cost something in the region of £30 billion for the next six months, probably roll it forward to more like £60, £65 billion for the next year. But of course, if energy prices, international energy prices were to rise more, it would cost more. You're already at that point into something that cost roughly as much as the furlough scheme did during the pandemic. So it's a big number. And both the Lib Dem and Labour policies are very much focused on households. You might be able to add something again, something of a similar size again, if you want to start protecting a lot of firms as well. So these very quickly become very big numbers indeed, so macroeconomically significant numbers. And that's before you even start looking at public expenditure uh, public services where if you don't want, you know, a school that is spending more money than it thought it was going to on electricity or a hospital that is spending more on um, electricity and heating, that's money that's not being spent in the classroom or on care. If you want to protect public services, then you need to inflation protect their budgets as well. So the way I think about it now is government debt to GDP in Britain is just shy of 100% at the moment after the pandemic. I think realistically, if energy prices stay at this level, it's going to 120% in the next two years. And we can choose how we get there. We can either directly subsidise firms, households, public services for their energy bills and borrow the money that way, or we can endure an even more gut-wrenching downturn and see a decline in tax revenues, increase in welfare spending and get there that way. But one way or another, government debt is going to rise sharply in the next two years if energy prices stay at these levels. An alternative response that's been offered by the energy industry itself is for the government to underwrite very large loans to, to the energy companies themselves and for them to take on the cost of freezing prices temporarily. The long-term cost of that sounds 
higher at around £100 billion. But if it's spread over more time and gives the government more room to, to target aid now, could it be a better idea or does it contain hidden risks? So it's, that's very similar to what Spain and Portugal have been doing since spring this year. So yes, you, have, you cap the wholesale price going to households and firms. So firms benefit from this plan as well. And yes, energy companies make up the difference of you know, essentially selling this energy to loss by borrowing in a government guaranteed scheme. And yeah, the plan is that you then pay that back through higher bills or maybe taxes over 10 to 15 years. So what you're essentially saying is rather than taking all of this pain in two years, Let's spread it out over 10 or 15. That's, yeah, as an approach, it's quite a sensible one. I think the design of the scheme in Spain and Italy, to Spain and Portugal, and as it's being talked about in Britain, it's a bit more expensive than it has to be by getting the energy companies to borrow, even with a government guarantee, rather than the government borrowing directly, because governments can generally borrow much cheaper than private firms, even if those firms have guarantee. So you could design it in a slightly less costly, slightly less bureaucratic way. But I think the idea of spreading the pain over 10 or 15 years is actually quite a sensible one if you could design the scheme properly. And is there a, an argument for saying that actually this this compound crisis of the cost of living the, and the wider issues like the climate crisis and the, the sheer scale of this requires the kind of a new approach to the way we think and the government thinks about the economy, as people talked about during the early stages of the pandemic, but that, that never seemed to quite materialise. Do you think it's time to revisit those kinds of arguments? Oh, it certainly is. But of course, we had a similar discussion in 2008, 2009 as well at the start of the financial crisis. In the moment of crisis, there are lots of now is the moment to rethink. And then the moment you move out of the crisis, that rethinking tends to get pushed to the back. But I think in the end, the government is going to have to absorb a lot of these high energy costs for firms and businesses. Otherwise, you're going to see widespread destitution, huge waves of corporate business failures. And we should remember that not all of it, but lots of this pain is the result of an undeclared economic war we are fighting with Russia. And if the government, want, the government rightly has put tough sanctions on the Russian economy, it's retarding Russia's war effort, it's punishing its aggression in Ukraine. But fighting economic wars is not cost-free. The way we are feeling that pain is through staggeringly high energy bills. And I think if, you know, it is really incumbent on the government to absorb as much of that pain as it can if it wants to maintain broad political support for standing up to Russian aggression in Ukraine. So whatever happens, the government is going to end up borrowing a lot of money in the next two years to get firms and households through this. It's probably going to have to borrow a lot of money to kickstart investment in renewables, in nuclear. So the government, we might be about to elect our most instinctively free marketeer prime minister in three or four decades, but her first acts are going to see the government acting in a much more interventionist manner than it has for the last few decades, capping prices, bailing out firms, perhaps overseeing investment programs. Now, that should be a moment for stepping back and reconsidering our wider economic model. But I'm afraid that might have to wait until we get to a general election on the other side of this crisis. Duncan Weldon, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Will Dunn, and my guest, Duncan Weldon. If you've liked this episode, please do rate us and leave a review. 
Our producer has been Adrian Bradley, and the music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.